0: Hello, and welcome to Occupied Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. My name is Sarah Ann Minken, and I'm the Director of Programs and Partnerships for the Foundation. This episode of Occupied Thoughts consists of a webinar we held earlier today, January 30th, 2023. The webinar is called Who Can Speak for Palestine? And is the first event in a new series that FMEP is hosting together with Al-Shabaka, the Palestinian think tank. The series is called Learning and Unlearning Palestine. All of the links you'll hear discussed in this webinar are posted on the FMEP website. Just go to fmep.org, look at our events index, and look up the series Learning and Unlearning Palestine. Thanks so much for joining us today, and please come back for the rest of the series. Thanks so much.
1: I'm Dr. Mahanassar, non-resident fellow at the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I'm also a member of the Palestinian Policy Network and an associate professor in the School of Middle Eastern and North African Studies at the University of Arizona. Today is January 30th, 2023, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to our webinar, Who Can Speak on Palestine? Today's webinar is the first in a webinar series organized jointly by FMEP and Echebeke, titled Learning and Unlearning Palestine. Stay tuned at the end of today's conversation, where we'll be telling you about upcoming installments in this series. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by two experts on today's topic who have written and thought a lot about this question on who can speak for Palestine. First, we have Nurjuda. Jouda. completed her PhD in Geography at UCLA and is currently the University of California Presidential Postdoctoral Fellow at UC Berkeley. Noor's work examines mapping practices and indigenous survival and futures in settler states, highlighting how indigenous counter mapping is is a both cartographic and decolonial praxis. She's also a co-author of Palestine as Praxis, Scholarship for Freedom, which came out in May 2021 And is an open letter and call to action that we'll be discussing today. I'm also joined by Dina Mata, a professor of political communication at SOAS University of London, where she is also chair of the Center for Palestine Studies. She writes on Palestine, cultural politics, memory cultures, narrative, and voice, as well as non-state actors in the Middle East with a particular focus on Palestine. She is the author of what it means to be Palestinian, and co author of The Hezbollah Phenomenon, Politics and Communication. She is also co editor of Narrating Conflict in the Middle East and Gaza as Metaphor. Let us begin. So, regular lead- listeners of Ashabaka and of FMAP's programming often hear Palestinian voices and perspectives on a wide range of issues. So, it sometimes can be easy to forget that for most of the 20th century, the very existence of the Palestinian people was called into question in the West. For decades, Western audiences were told there's no such thing as Palestinians. They don't really exist, not as a people and certainly not as a national group that deserves a state of their own. Until the 1980s, Palestinian national symbols and even references to Palestine were mostly absent from the public eye in the U.S. and Europe. That began to change in the late 1980s with the first intifada, and continued during the Oslo process of the 1990s. Yet even as Palestinians have been increasingly recognized by American and European policymakers and public audiences over the last three decades, there remains a lingering and disturbing trend. A trend in which Palestinians are frequently talked about, but less often heard from. In my own work examining American media outlets over the past 50 years, I found that only a tiny percentage of op-ed pieces in major U.S. media outlets that discuss Palestinians are actually written by Palestinians. And so turning to Dina and Noor now, my first question to you, as experts who've been closely examining this question of Eurasia, of the Palestinians for a long time, My question is, what does the erasure of the Palestinian narrative look like to you? How have you seen it manifested on campuses and activist spaces or in the media? And uh, Dina, I think we'll start with you.
2: Um, Thank you so much. and Thank you for inviting me to be part of this very important webinar, particularly in this particular context where we are seeing again and again, uh, violence against Palestinians in really incredible ways um and so we salute people who are living under occupation um but to talk about erasure i mean for me the question of erasure is a question of silencing and it comes in different ways so silencing is more or less a mode of control of exerting power and of uh not allowing the marginalized or those people that you don't agree with to speak uh, to speak out and in the case of palestinians we have seen that happening in in different ways and for a very long time and it continues to happen so it is most apparent as far as i'm concerned because my research is also research uh, very similar to mahas in uh, about media narratives and media representations it's about the absence of Palestinian voices when the media discusses issues of importance. But not only that; even if they do, uh, you know, it, and, and I'm talking about the mainstream Western media, uh, like the BBC, CNN, and so on. And even when they, uh, even when they invite Palestinians, you know, they're kind of responding uh, to questions that put them on the defensive. So the erasure for me, or the silencing, the erasure of the Palestinian voice is also in the language used, uh, particularly when Palestinians are often talked about in numbers without specifying that there are children who are involved in um, horrifying attacks and so on. Um, And also, it's not only in numbers, it's also the violent language that is sometimes used to refer to the Palestinians. And um, in relation to that, we also find a lack of of context, a lack of background uh, or substance to uh, media coverage when it comes to Palestine-Israel. Uh, importantly, uh, there is also the erasure that uh, of the fact that um, the conflict is uh, unequal, um, and so I think all of these issues come up uh, again and again, and they contribute to a dominant discourse that becomes normalized and becomes um, taken for granted in a sense that it becomes accepted as the truth. Um, And this is problematic. Uh, And so what we try and do is to try and and point out to the the problems arising around uh, representations and uh, the erasure of Palestinians. Maha, did you want me to talk about um, academia, or do we want to talk about that uh, later on? Because I think Noor might want to come in now. Um, I'm happy to continue talking, but... Thank you, Dina. Let's bring
1: in Noor now to talk a little bit about it. And we'll also be uh, talking about campus spaces as well. Noor, go ahead. How does the erasure of the Palestinian narrative look to you? Um, well, like Dina, thanks so much for having us and
3: Maha for moderating and hosting. Um, no I think for, for like for many of us, the question for me is kind of endless, right? And examples Erasure was and is present across every institution that we encounter, both in, ex- in exile and diaspora and in occupied Palestine, um, though certainly in, in different forms, varying entities. Um, and it can show up, I, I think, as Dean alluded to, in really everyday interactions from a border crossing right where one answers Palestine to the question of where are you from and then is met with a look of befuddlement and confusion um, to constantly needing to relate the geography uh, to one representative of the place so my mother's favorite example was calling uh, mamul Jerusalem cookies, right? When she would distribute them to neighbors at Christmas because it was too much trouble to explain everything all at once. So she said, here are your Jerusalem cookies for Christmas. Um, But of course there are, uh, as Dina said, much more sinister manifestations of erasure like blacklists and hiring um, or threats against promotion based on political activism and support of Palestine. no mention as we've you know seen I, I think regularly and are seeing again right now uh, no mention of Palestinian death until the first Israeli death or settlement structure is damaged, um, not entire apartment buildings in Gaza, um, arrests without charge or trial, elongated imprisonment under false accusation, which is not specific only to Israel. It happens you know across um, across countries. I think though, and we can speak a little bit more to this later, I have found it, I've started to find it more useful and have through the years, um, and maybe it's also a coping mechanism on my part to also find spaces of visibility. Um, and when I came across those, and when I'd come across those, because we do inevitably do have those as well, right? And when we find those spaces of visibilities, is to ask, why here? Why, is, why are we visible in this space and how can we grow this space? How can we create this circumstance in other, in, other er, in other areas? And what became, I think, apparent to me really quickly was that there was more at play than a question of erasure or lack of education, which is, I think, something we discuss a lot when it comes to Palestine, lack of education and how to educate, but actually miseducation and the very sort of calculated and programmatic effort to write a narrative on our behalf right? Um, Whether that manifests on the international stage with manipulations of international law, why do Palestinians have UNRWA and not the UNHCR, right? Um, Historically, whether in textbooks globally that may not erase Palestine historically, but are very careful to write about the establishment of Israel in in a particular way, Um, So like I said, I I think the examples of erasure and miseducation are particularly in media coverage are abundant. But interestingly, I think that there are also kind of growing spaces of visibility, not just since social media. I think we like to talk a lot about the impact of social media, which is very, very important, but also since the beginning of of the liberation movement, since the early 50s, um, we have had those spaces of visibility, whether it's in political coalitions globally. Um, classrooms, with our neighbors, wherever we might be. So I think actually some of the backlash that we've seen, which we list in examples of erasure like blacklisting, right, is actually interestingly a result of successfully increasing visibility of Palestine and Palestinians. And that's not to say that erasure isn't consistently, constantly and consistently present but that the increase of our visibility sometimes is also, that erasure is also sometimes a response to increases of visibility. And so it's not an either or, but there is this very much kind of a relationship um, with, how, uh, with how the political movement um, works in relation to these issues, which you know, we'll get into a bit, I think, too,
2: today. Thank uh, you. Um, is it possible for me to come in and just comment a little bit on, I really appreciate you saying about the you know the spaces of visibility, and the fact that it's true that the Palestinians have been narrated and talked about and, and discussed in different ways. Um, but Palestinians are now, you know, they do, not ha- they do not wait for the permission to speak, permission to narrate. You know, Edward Said uh, wrote a very famous um, journal article or maybe a book chapter, I can't remember exactly, where he talks about the need for the Palestinians to have the right to narrate. And I, I think that Palestinians are claiming that right now without, uh, without having to ask for permission. And it's a very important um, you know, kind of temporality or a time in Palestinian history where you have this constant kind of struggle for, um, for voice and representation. And this is an aspect of um, the struggles that kind of define uh, anti-colonial movements. Uh, everywhere in the world, whether you're talking about anti-colonial movements in the in the uh, late or in the mid nine, uh, 20th century, or or the present, uh, talking about um, you know kind of Black Lives Matters and other types of movements, but yes, um, absolutely, there are spaces of appearance, and these are not new. It isn't only social media, but you know Palestinians have always been engaged in. The um, in finding uh, spaces for visibility and for appearance. And obviously it goes to before the Nakba, after the Nakba. And the, the, the liberation movement, you know, the Palestinian liberation movement was very active on that front. I've written about that and I kind of feel that that's a period that we often forget. And it was actually the ordinary people who were also mobilized um, to take part in telling their own stories. But I want to stop here uh, and see uh, uh, and give the floor to Maha Thank you both for that. Dina, I
1: appreciate that you uh, globalized our context a little bit, right, to really emphasize that throughout the 20th century, the Palestinians have been very visible on a world stage, especially in terms of Um, uh, coordination with, solidarity with other anti-colonial movements. I think it's very telling that it was particular to the U.S. and Western Europe, where we found a lot of erasure of the Palestinian voices, of Palestinian narrative. Noor, I also appreciate your... Um, intervention and in your comment about the visibility and the erasure coexisting with one another, and the ways in which the attempts to erase are often in response to the rising visibility of Palestinians. One place where we see that tension between visibility and erasure is in academic spaces and on college campuses, where which is one of the few places in the U.S. and in Western Europe where we have a relatively Um, we have relatively more visibility for Palestinian narratives and perspectives. I don't think it's a a coincidence that Edward Said, for example, was a high profile professor at Columbia University at an Ivy League institution. So turning for a moment to academia and to college campuses, uh, Noor, you were a co-author last year of an open letter and call to action called Palestine in Praxis. It was circulated in May 2021 during Israel's escalation of violence against Palestinians. In the open letter, you call you and your co-authors call on scholars to center Palestinian voices in their research, teaching and outreach. And uh, Sarah Edminkins just posted a link to it in the, in the chat. So why did you and your co-authors feel the need to issue that letter, particularly at that time last May? So I think, I mean, there is this
3: sort of obvious and urgent answer, which is what was happening in in spring 2021, right, demonstrations against demolitions in Sheikh Jarrah and evictions, ongoing evictions and dispossession of Palestinians in Jerusalem across the occupied territories, increasing arrest campaigns, uh, incredibly violent, right, Israeli military and police actions to Palestinians confronting the occupation across historic Palestine, including Palestinian citizens of Israel, lynchings of those Palestinian citizens of Israel. And then, of course, you know, per usual, and I don't say this lightly, right, or to be funny, but it has become very standard, topping all of that off with a war, uh, with a war on Gaza. And we were certainly, none of us were certainly witnessing any of these events with an element of first-time experience, uh, unfortunately. However, I think that what was kind of The point of this for me and many of the other grad students and professors that were involved is just this overwhelming feeling that the world continues to see these crisis moments and sort of flare-ups and Palestinians experience but as as flare ups, right? But Palestinians experience these moments not just regularly. Yes, we have an ongoing Nakba, and we have these constant sort of um, deaths. We've had you know, thirty, although I think it's gone up now, even, even since I made my notes um, since the since twenty twenty three started in, in, in the last month, and we're not through January. Um, but it's more than right that, right? It's also that we as Palestinians experience experience even these moments that we see as turns um in sort of our history or, or or that are significant um none of them are unprecedented right um even dina much more so as someone who who works sort of in in history can can speak to this uh much better than me but um even in moments that we recognize historically as, as significant, um, the reality is they're not unprecedented in the sense that we've seen something like them before. We can we have parallels. We can make comparisons, and those are present. Um, and so we really wanted, you know, as grad students and professors, um, to speak to a community that we are a part of, um, which was academia and institutions of higher education, to say that a practice of the commitment. Um, to a, liber- a liberated Palestine is needed and that it requires more than lip service. Um, and so I don't want to take too much time on it, but I think, you know, we're, like you mentioned, the link is provided in the chat. People can read that in full. Um, but really, you know, it was questions of how we conduct research, um, how um, to sort of commit ourselves to not be extractive in those processes um, of, of not just going in and doing a few interviews and leaving a community. Um, and after getting what you need, but also, you know, don't call yourself an expert if you spent two weeks in Ramallah. Um, You know, spare us that, please. Um, Who and what we teach in classrooms. Maybe you're teaching fantastic texts on Palestine, but how many Palestinians are you teaching? Uh, How many Palestinians are on your syllabus? And why is it that you think that you should only be teaching non-Palestinians, even if they are sympathetic, even if their research is um, is solid, right? Um, so questions uh, similar to that are, are really kind of what we what we wanted to bring up, and we had an you know we had an overwhelming response. Um, but you know, obviously, we also have a long way to go in in you know extending these conversations and the practice of what what it means to do that um, in academic spaces. But we do see shifts. You know, I I've been teaching for over a decade, um, and I can see it in in a classroom. When I walk into a classroom and I discuss Israel as a settler colony, the amount of framing and historical work that I had to do 10 years ago in a lecture versus what I have to do now to even start a conversation is night and day. And that is also generational, right? Um, Because of what students are coming up with, not only in media, um, but also in and younger parts of their in their learning. So we are seeing some of those shifts, but but we do have a long way to go, obviously, as well.
1: Great, thank you for that, Noor. Um, Dina, you're the chair of the Center for Palestine Studies at SOAS in London. So how do you see the British academic landscape with regard to centering Palestinian voices? Um, is it similar to how Noor is describing the landscape in the US or are there particularities there?
2: Um, it is similar and not similar at the same time. I I never I I was never an I lived in America for a while, but I was not an academic. Uh, but I started my career as a journalist. So and I worked in journalism for about fifteen years. Um, so in a sense, I was also working with a Western news agency reporting on the Middle East, and obviously, it's it was constraining. Uh, but I also these I also still see these constraining um, kind of uh, practices in academia. So even uh, even at SOAS, which is you know kind of a, a an open environment, it's you know the student body is amazing, the academics are amazing. We still find ourselves, and even as a center for Palestine studies, we we try and uh, we try and provide critical engagement with scholarship um on palestine and we try and and you know engage with um with with people on the ground i agree with with Nord that you know parachuting uh parachuting uh, academics into the field uh, spend two weeks there and come out and write um an analytical paper is not enough we used to have the same um Kind of language to talk about parachuting journalists who would go into a situation of war and come out speaking as though they knew everything. But to go back to the situation in in the UK in particular, um, we do have uh, we do have a problem we are facing, which is um, in relation to the IHRA definition, which it is becoming harder to center Palestinian voices and academics to. Uh, be able to speak out because of the constraints of this uh, definition. Um, So so we don't see actual actions uh, silencing Palestinians, but we do hear of uh, of issues happening even in the UK. So I know of someone at um, Sheffield University uh, who was accused of being uh, anti-Semitic for Lecturing um, and using a language that was, uh, you know, seen to be very pro-Palestinian, anti-Israel. So um, she was accused of being anti-Semitic, and there was this big campaign against her, which was really problematic. Um, And there are other issues, you know, uh, that that happen and pertaining to Palestinian scholars in particular going to do some research um, in Palestine. Recently, I was. Uh, approached by a a loafer, and then uh, they said that uh, an academic, Palestinian academic, was working as part of research for a British university, and uh, doing work in Palestine on house demolitions, and he was um, actually, um, according to the, the the narrative, tortured by uh, Israeli forces. Now, this type of you know this type of uh, situation. No one writes about it, you know. No, you know, it's it very very rarely do these things come out in the public. Um, but I think that in terms of the IHRa definition, it's the conflation of uh, criticism of Israel with anti-Semitism, and and it is a, a question of uh, freedom of expression and freedom of speech. So you, you kind of um, turn up in classrooms and you're wary of what you have to say given the uh given the fact that you might be someone might come up and and start a campaign against you saying um because you are um you are clearly uh, anti-anti-israeli then you are anti-semitic um I wanted to mention this because we've had uh, also uh, several uh reports saying that merely um you know that um it kind of causes problems as well. Uh, for example, we've had uh, a report uh, that is called the Tuck Report, which is, um, it, you know, commissioned by by the government here to look into complaints of anti-Semitism in the National Union of Students, um, uh, uh, and 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 trying to say that they do have uh, the NUS is anti-Semitic, um, and so the report. Um, Acknowledges that there is anti-Semitism on campus, but then it, it ignores uh, the fact that uh, the, uh, that that these these students were actually criticizing Israel. They're not being anti-Semitic. So we do have this kind of tension um, that is coming up within the student body, but also uh, academic body about what you can say in public, given the background of uh, the IHRA uh, definition. Um, Perhaps, you know, some some, um, other universities have different experiences, but so as we don't, you know, at where I am, we don't have uh, too many problems arising out of it. But you're always conscious of the fact that someone might accuse you of being anti-Semitic. Uh, because you are uh, you are uh, criticizing Israel
1: thank you for that Dean I think that's a really important point um, to to think about and, and pause at for a moment which are the ways in which again thinking about the ways in which erasure functions as a Reaction to visibility, I think the IHRA definition and the push to have that become institutionalized and and have institutions adopt that definition formally is a precise example of this, of, of the attempt to erase Palestinians' ability to narrate their own experiences by saying anything you say that criticizes Israel's structural formation as a racialized entity, as a settler colony, as practicing apartheid, those things can easily become, you know, can be accused, can lead one to be accused of um, anti-Semitism under the IHRA definition.
3: Nah, if, if I could add one thing, go ahead. I'm, re- I'm so glad you brought up the IHRA definition, Dina, and I mean, it's, I agree with everything that you said, and I just would add to that in addition to sort of the limitations on, on freedom of expression and speech and an incredibly problematic conflation of anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism, um, you know, there's, we go back to this question of sort of fighting the miseducation and also um, ideally, also strategically, um, I think, I and, and hope, and you, you we do see it happen within, within solidarity movements, right? Um, which is aligning ourselves with, actually a- appropriate responses, which is there is an increase in anti-Semitism. Um, but it, it's about linking that to white supremacy, not about linking that to anti-Zionism, right? Um, and I I mentioned um, to the other uh, panelists um, when we were speaking before the before today's program started, I'm, you know, I'm in the Bay uh, in California this week um, as a as a postdoc at Berkeley. I dr- I was driving around Berkeley this week, and I I m- stunned by a massive billboard um, that says anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism, right? Um, and so we ha- these. There are very real implications to to what this definition is creating at institutions and in larger public discourse. Um, and I think a huge part of battling that, you know, is is about talking about freedom of expression and speech, but it's also about tying processes of anti-Semitism to their to their actual root causes, which is not a question of Palestine and Israel but is a question of larger histories of white supremacy um, right in the US and in Europe and across the world. So it's um yeah it's a it's a very pressing issue right now. Uh, I think the American Bar Association is also voting next week on the issue. So yeah thank you so much Dina for bringing that up.
2: Uh, Thank you. And I appreciate the fact that you mentioned, you know, kind of uh, putting the the Palestinian cause or or the Palestinian problem, whichever way you want to talk about it, within a global context of oppression and white supremacy and kind of uh, lack of uh, attention to the rights of indigenous people and marginalized people. And again, that might be one of the tactics that we Palestinians need to use going forward is to try and ally ourselves with with these movements uh, much more clearly and and positively uh, and move forward hopefully.
1: Yes, thank you both for that. So I wanna turn now to, and I think this leads up nicely to it, talking about the larger um, discursive spaces and thinking specifically about the media landscape. So if we turn to the media, it is true, I would say that Western mainstream media outlets have in recent years been giving more space to Palestinians. but the problem remains, which is that Palestinians are often paired with Zionist Israeli or American pro-Israel voices in these sort of debate style out in these debate style formats. And so the setup often puts Palestinians in their position, where they are responding to Israeli framings that condemn Palestinian violence, for example, but don't talk about the broader Israeli structural violence that Noor talked about in her opening comments that affect Palestinians every day, things like checkpoints and home demolitions and um, the lack of freedom that Palestinians have um, just moving in their day-to-day lives, permit regimes and so forth. So I'm curious, what do you see in terms of Palestinian access to mainstream media outlets? What levels of freedom or agency can Palestinians assert in a setup that necessarily constricts them to sound bites where they're often put on the back foot? And whoever would like to start can go ahead. Tina, maybe you can start since you've worked in media for, for a long time.
2: Okay. Uh, Thank you so much for that. And and I think the problem, you know, I think the problem is also with us sometimes, um, uh, with with Palestinians, you know, sort of taking the initiative. And this is what what I hope will be changing, uh, you know, having people like Noor, you know, of the younger generation coming up and and being more proactive. So what happens with the media debates is obviously it's a debate of uh, unequal, unequal power. And often, as you said, uh, Maha, we have you know these. Uh, you, you kind of have uh, the, the A representative speaking for Israel, let us say, and and then the Palestinian representative is coming to respond. So we're always in a position of responsiveness, um, and 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 that is an unequal. Um, I- exactly, it's an unequal, uh, ine- unequal structure, structural bias that's already there in, in the media landscape. How do we move out of that? The, the other issue that we keep, we, we forget um, that is also happening um, is that Israel, Israel has this uh, propaganda policy, well, it's a PR called Hasbara. And they have, and, and I'm talking about the UK example, they, they began a, like the, the Zionist lobby, the Israeli lobby in the United States. There's an organization called Bicom here um, um british israeli communication and it's very proactive and they do have you know they write these long reports uh they do they do a lot of networking they keep bombarding the media with uh letters of complaints if they have uh palestinian uh, people speaking if they have you know other than uh the, the palestinian the official palestinian representative if they if if the media give any space for uh, palestinian voices so and and then we you know the question about how does media frame the issue is a huge question that we study in media studies and so on we talk about it a lot the problem the problem is what we talked about at the beginning which is the dominance of particular narratives and language that is used and these are they become taken for granted and it takes a long time to shift them but there is a need to keep working and to keep putting in the public um, kind of statements that are actually not defensive, but explanatory that explain the situation, the context. This is what's happening. Um, and we used to have, in the UK, we used to have uh, an organization called Arab Media Watch where you could you know, kind of uh, respond to the media and start sending letters, but it found that because of lack of funding, so there is a need for being uh, pr- proactive and 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 try and uh, respond to the um, inequality that we experience daily from the media. Um, I don't want to go. I, I would probably be accused of being anti-Semitic, but we've had the Holocaust Memorial uh, uh, Week this week, and of course we had uh, you know the situation on the ground. What's happening? But the concentration of material around the Holocaust and around, you know, kind of the, the language of suffering and so on, of course, I I understand that. But there, there is a need to, you know, sometimes there is a need to be a little bit, you know, more proactive and, and kind of um, right, not of Palestinians as victims or as suffering, but as agents in their own story. Um, and as you know, as as kind of trying to uh, live their lives and continue living their lives in a way that is, you know very uh, what is the word? you know, it's uh, it gives it gives us hope, you know, it's it's hopeful. Um, we have to think about it as hope. but there is there is no doubt that the the media representations and the media, uh, way of framing issues and for of persistently giving more voice to um, Israeli and Zionist voices uh, is a big problem.
1: Yes, thank you. Thank you for that, Dina. And I think you speak to the the length of the problem. It's, a, it's an ongoing problem that's been around for a very, very long time. Uh, uh, Anur, I'm curious to hear from you what you think in terms of this question of framing, and particularly more recently, is this still an ongoing problem in terms of the restriction of Palestinians' ability to assert their experiences and perspectives in mainstream media?
3: Yeah, of course. I mean, framing continues to be an issue um, all the time, right? And we see it every time we have one of these quote unquote, right, flare ups. Who started what? And is it a response? And is this that as if, as if 70 years has really been tit for tat, and there is no underlying foundational issue um, here, right? Um, I I will say that there has been, right, as Dina alluded to, um, and spoke to a an increase in Palestinian access to mainstream media outlets. But I would encourage us, I think, and this is something we don't really talk about enough or at all really publicly, we talk a lot about it privately. Um, to remember how demanding it is for these individuals that are invited and accept um, these invitations, you know, we see several and many of them women, amazing women who are getting up up, up on CNN um, and on the BBC and, and Al Jazeera and all of these different news outlets, and speaking to incredibly important issues and speaking um, on behalf of Palestinians. Um, And then what's happening on the ground? But that's exhausting. Um, And the reality is, I think some of us like to think um, that you know these are the that there's a lot of ego in this, and that there's uh, that these people are like the only ones that that get invited. But the truth is, a lot of them um, actually say no to a lot of uh, a lot of invitations, and they send those invitations to other individuals. In the community, um, who say they they won't do it, or they can't do it, or they're too scared to do it, and so so then those men or women, those Palestinian men or women, um, end up feeling obligated to take another slot on a media on in a media um, situation where they would have been happy to have someone else be another voice, right? I'm not saying that's always 100 percent of the time what's happening, but it happens a lot more than we're aware of, um, and I and I think. Pa- The need for that awareness to know that that's happening is that we also need to protect those individuals, Um, because not only are they going through something sort of exhausting personally, but the amount of sort of public attack that they undergo is incredible. Um, It's daunting. Um, So I think it is important for us to kind of be aware of of these um, dynamics when it comes to mainstream media. you know, I have family in Gaza. Uh, I have friends who often reference or send will send media to me. Um, but honestly, when there's a war happening in Gaza, that's the last thing that I'm capable of of dealing with, right? And so I'll say no, and it'll be the other person that goes up and whatever. And it's not always the case that no one was reached out to. Um, so there is a bit of that happening, unfortunately, and that's just part of a human, a reality and human experience. Um. The other aspect of it is, you know, I I think what happens with mainstream media is a reminder just how much of an utter disregard there is for Palestinian lives. And that becomes really difficult, um, I think, for a lot of people to deal with. Um, And that is the biggest issue in questions of framing, right? We can talk sort of about, oh, the use use and manipulation of Hamas's history or the use and manipulation of hijackings or this or that. Um, but the reality is that there is an utter disregard for the value uh, of a Palestinian life. And that is what we see time and again. Now, going back to what I was trying to divert from earlier, um, which was saying that not everything is about sort of the development of social media. We have historical moments of, of visibility and political co- coalitions globally, as, as Dean alluded to, to numerous um, you know, leftist and sort of justice movements around the world social media has been a huge force in allowing Palestinians to assert their perspectives and experiences. Um, organizations like you know, US Campaign or IMEU or others, um, or a lot, a ton of sort of independent um, Instagram groups, Twitter accounts, et cetera, being able to put forth um, not just news stories, but put forth videos and uh, moments of advocacy that get, that get shared and go viral have become incredibly impactful. And I notice it um, very much with my students in particular. Um, I've noticed, I grew up in Tennessee. I grew up in the American South, not a place, um, partic- you know, known particularly for a wide ranging of, you know, leftist education, well, to put it mildly. Um, but I grew up in communities that developed um, wonderful personal relationships with me and my family, um, institutions of higher education, high schools, et cetera. And their exposure to what has been on social media in the last 10 years has done a lot for their own education and their own correction of miseducation that they have been exposed to over the years. So I think that there is a powerful impact of that. Um, it has its limitations, obviously. It's not enough to do all of it, um, but it does, it does allow Palestinians one avenue um, to assert voices that they didn't necessarily have previously, which is our our our, our alternative, excuse me, um, versions of media, right? Aside from the BBC and CNN, um, etc. So, I mean, I think we do have we do have at
2: least um, some of those conversations happening. Great. So, can I, can I quickly also refer uh, very quickly? Sorry, apologies, Maham. Um, yeah, but-, but also, you know, sort of uh, one can say that. Uh, in reference to the UK, the situation is the worst it has been in terms of the ability to speak out. And I notice, uh, one corrected me, it is um, it is not Sheffield, it's Sheffield Hallam University. Um, but in a sense, uh, and I think this is the moment for us to grasp, you know, there are cracks that are appearing, as as you were saying, there are changes. You know, social media has been an amazing uh, tool uh, for um you know, uh, the stories to be told for, you know, you you know, if you want to know, then you could uh, you would be able to know. And it's amazing what students can help you find. You know, there are you know, you can't you can't see everything, but they can uh, tell you about solidarity with Palestinians coming out of uh, places that you would never think they would know, uh, know what a Palestinian is. But I want to emphasize what Noor said, which is the utter disregard for a Palestinian human life, which is the worst thing, you know, in a sense, um, in terms of uh, uh, international law, in terms of human rights, uh, and so on. That that has, you know, it continues to be a problem uh, with the media coverage of the situation in Palestine.
1: Thank you for that, Dina. So both of you have um, alluded, have du- directly actually addressed this question of mainstream media outlets denying, dismissing, disregarding Palestinian lives, livelihoods, perspectives, or trying to shoehorn Palestinian perspectives into a particular narrative. know, D- uh, you also just talked about the rise of social media. I think along with that is the rise of alternative media outlets that are often web based and often very, very unapologetically progressive and even leftist in their orientation. And you're absolutely right. I think they've had a huge impact on how people see what's going on in terms of um, the the realities on the ground. So even as these progressive media outlets have more acceptance of Palestinian narratives and experiences of violence and subjugation under Israeli occupation, I have found, and I don't think I'm alone in this, I found that these alternative media outlets are still often inviting Jewish and Israeli activists to talk about the Palestinian experiences rather than Palestinians themselves. It may be a way for them to try to inoculate themselves against accusations of anti-Semitism or maybe in order to have more legitimacy of what's being um, talked about. But I think this practice also reinforces the notion that Palestinians aren't somehow capable or legitimate enough to tell their own stories. Now Nu, you just talked about capacity, which I think is also an important thing to keep in mind. And I, I, I think you're right that we don't think about it enough. So is it a question of capacity or is it a question of privilege, privileging um, non-Palestinian voices or voices of allies over the voices of Palestinians themselves? And then what gets lost when we do privilege, or, or when these media outlets privilege voices of allies versus Palestinians themselves? nor what do you
3: think? I mean, I certainly don't think it's an either or, right? I mean, I think we have questions. Not that you're insinuating it is, but I, I think to answer your question, I think it is. there are these issues of capacity, and I wanted to bring them up because it's something we don't talk about enough, but certainly not to say that this is the reason, right? And it's just one of many sort of things happening in the dynamic. Um, there is right. There is this question of who is who is a legitimate voice, um, and when and why. Um, it It continues. It continues to happen. It's never going to stop. I use the example in academia all the time. Um, when students are like, you know, we give them um, we give them a text, or we have them watch a video of a lecture. And they, you know, if somebody has a response, well, is this person biased because they're from the region, even though they're a Middle East historian, et cetera. And I was like, well, you don't ask that question when an an American historian is talking about the 13 colonies, right? So what is the difference? And I I think, again, pushing, constantly pushing the discourse and the conversation to challenge the root of why we're asking these questions, you know? Um, Josiko has a really famous book called Footnotes on Gaza, um, it's a beautiful graphic novel and it's about the 56 massacre of Hanun and and Rafa. This is one of my mother's earliest memories. I actually grew up with the story of this massacre. and Joseko, the story is that he has never heard about this and in the in the middle of reading a UN report, he finds one reference to this in a footnote and he digs and he digs and he digs and he can't find, uh, anything that really covers this, any substantive things, but particularly in English that covers this um, massacre. And so he goes to uh, Rafah Yunus in Gaza and conducts oral histories and, and writes this book. And suddenly, for as much as I appreciate the project, because someone who is not Palestinian went in and lifted up the voices of these oral histories. We now are we have this kind of thing on the record in a way that was is more significant than a footnote in a UN speech uh, or in a UN report. Excuse me. So these are, I mean, these are very important conversations to have. And the media, um, and in, including even leftist and progressive media, is not um, immune to sort of uh, being you know sub- being subject to some of these biases. Um, and thinking that, oh, let's, you know, let's have so-and-so on. It'll, they're, they're a great speaker and they're actually making great points, but why are you, why are you leaning to toward this person and not a Palestinian, or why not this person and a Palestinian, right? Why the need to even have, and have it be someone and an Israeli, why can't you have two people speaking about the Palestinian perspective or the Palestinian ex- experience without even bringing in an Israeli, um, Right. I, I gave a talk a couple of months back at Berkeley about some research and I didn't even realize I did this. And it was maybe the greatest compliment anyone's ever given me, um, was afterwards a friend said, Hey, knew you know what I mentioned? I realized that in your entire talk, you didn't mention Israel once. And, and, and I said, really, I said, I didn't even realize that I did that. And they said, yeah. And I thought that that was great. You know, I did, it wasn't, I didn't even realize that I'd done it. It wasn't like some intentional thing by me, but I was talking about something that was a very particular Palestinian project. Why the need to constantly pull this other sort of narrative in, as if everything we do is a response to them? So it's also sometimes it's us. Sometimes it's also us being aware um, that we, for very you know sort of um, understandable reasons, feel the need to have everything be a response. So. There's a lot of there's a lot of sort of um, retraining and education that has to happen across the board, and I don't think any of us are are immune to that.
2: And, Gina, go ahead. Yeah, just just very quickly in relation to this, I think we have to be very uh, you know also very proud of of the ways that Palestinians are creating their media. I mean. The amount of material uh, that comes out, whether it's in art, whether it's music, whether it's in uh, you know anything that talks about everyday lives, in really without making reference to Israel, is so important, you know, in a, in a way, uh, and and so it is it is very humbling to see what is being produced, even under conditions of extreme violence and repression.
1: Thank you. Yes. Yeah, so thinking also beyond appearing on other people's media outlets, but really taking the initiative to create our own productions, media productions, cultural productions, and so forth. Absolutely. Thank you to you like, both, like Elshadika, for example. Like El
3: as, as we all sit here, I mean, I mean, we have a perfect example in on in Foundation Release really in one of our hosts today. I mean, you know, yeah. we we are we do have these growing institutions, and I think going to them and encouraging increased participation and um, and highlighting the work that they do, you know, online and so on. Um, cite this article instead of this one. I mean, we all have to find ways to be more active in that, and myself included. I mean, we, we can all be a little bit better at it.
1: All right, yeah, thank you for that. Shout out, actually, let's do a shout out to both of our, our sponsors today. So Shabaka as a Palestinian policy network and the Foundation for Middle East Peace, which, peace, which last year launched, uh, Palestinian non-resident fellowships, of which I am one of them, which I appreciate FMAP for recognizing the need to platform more Palestinian voices. So thank you to them. So let's turn now to, uh, to those solidarity movements. So by solidarity movements, here I'm referring here to all of the various entities, community groups, grassroots organizations, political organizations, that seek to raise awareness about the Palestinian cause, especially in the US and the UK. To their credit, many of these movements have moved beyond the stale 90s discourse of the peace process and the, you know, having peace between Israelis and Palestinians, that whole discourse that we've been criticizing precisely because it ignores the power imbalances between Israel and the Palestinians Uh, and And instead they're increasingly talking about settlements and the occupation, Israel's apartheid regime, settler colonialism, and about the need for Palestinian liberation. At the same time, there seems to be some discomfort among some of these solidarity organizations talking about Palestinian resistance to Israel's various forms of domination. It's almost as if some of these groups are more comfortable talking about Palestinians as victims than they are talking about Palestinians as actors with agency. So I'm curious what your thoughts are on this. Um, And Noor, let's
3: start with you. I was going to let Dina start since I started last time.
2: Dina,
1: go ahead if you'd like to. Oh,
2: Dina, go ahead. There you go. Um, yeah that's that's a good point. Uh, but I think you know the, you know the, the point is that the victimization discourse, the victimhood discourse for me just doesn't work in a sense you know it's um, it kind of reduces human beings to receiving, you know always uh, receiving um, uh, violence or, at the, at the receiving end. And I think, you know, Palestinians are showing, Palestinians living under occupation, are showing that they are uh, actors in their own story. Um, and we need to emphasize that. And I think even with the discomfort of uh, the solidarity groups and even NGOs going in with this language of victim we are here to kind of save the victims, That has also become almost a, you know, being seen negatively by 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 people uh, receiving that type of um, that type of discourse. It it doesn't work, Um, and I think it's time that we we begin to say, well, you know, Palestinians are agents. They are like any other um, group of people who have been subject or are subjected to extreme. Uh, you know, kind of oppression and occupation for a very, very long time. They live with it. You know, they they're resilient. They're they're doing something about it. They're not just sitting quietly. Um, and I think this is the this is the narrative that we have to emphasize that you know that we're not just there waiting for someone to come and you know um, feel sorry for us and, and to hand us out uh, some packages of relief or you know money or whatever and this is this is a language that i think our leaders also need to need to need to take part in um there is no doubt that the palestinian leadership at the moment has kind of uh failed its people but um but there is and but there is a need to try to try and over you know to to try and 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 come to a point where you know ordinary people feel empowered and and um able to Uh, continue with their struggle. And this is something that solidarity movements will have to also work with at the same time.
1: Thank you, Dina. Noor? Yeah, I mean, I think
3: part of this is uh, we can talk sort of about the specificities within uh, the history of the Palestinian liberation movement and moments where this question of um, discussing Palestinians as victims versus actors kind of goes up and down. It does have it does have waves based on certain sort of kind of historical moments and phases. That said, um, I think part of part of this is also um, really. I mean, we can we can draw parallels to indigenous communities around the world, which is this question of we've done more than survive, we've done more than exist we've also built, we've also looked forward, we've also resisted and continue to resist. Um, we use, right Palestinians, um, one of our sort of central terms is sumud, but sumud is more than steadfastness or perseverance, it's also a looking forward. There is there's a part of sort of the untranslatable sort of notion of Samud is that there is a future, there's always the implication of a future, and I think that that's incredibly important to highlight always um, when we're when we're talking about these issues. Um, I think in in regards to solidarity groups specifically, it is difficult. You know, there's some of this is um, to be perfectly honest, less sinister and more just uh, innocent in the sense of we're 15 years into a siege on Gaza. And people are trying to highlight very legitimate humanitarian concerns at you know different events or when there's a war or, or you know breaches of constant breaches of international law and warfare, um, and you know sometimes these are students. These are we forget they're 19, 20 year old students on campuses, and they're they're also grappling with learning about this. So some of this is also about us being kind to each other and ourselves. Um, But there is, but it's also about the kinds of conversations we have in these groups, right? So are we encouraging events and conversations, you know, as advisors, um, as community leaders, um, just about collecting money for charity and and highlighting sort of this kind of need, um, as much as we are, for example, having events about history and education of the movement um, and, and, uh, you know, Campaigns on on BDS or whatever it might be, right? So there, it's also about which conversations we're encouraging and which conversations we're we're uplifting. Um, some of that is media specific. Some of that is specific to um, us as organizers or in organizing spaces. And I think for as much as um, you know, we're all human and we get frustrated in spaces and we want to walk away from you know. Um, places that are not focusing on we want on what we want, sometimes we also don't interject what we want enough. You know, if you're in a space that is, and I, and I say this to students and, and organizers, if you're in a space that isn't talking enough about the history of the movement or isn't talking enough about BDS or active or highlighting active um, sort of possibilities uh, happening in Palestine or outside, bring them up, push those, push those issues in those conversations for every event you have for wonderful, wonderful organizations like PCRF, you know, uh, Palestinian children's really fun and, and helping host a a Palestinian um, kid who's coming to the U.S. for, for surgery. Um, What can you, what can you do for that family to highlight their story beyond their need of surgery, right? In that same, in that same community. So, you know, there's no one easy answer for this, but I I think uh, the more that we talk to each other and the more that we sort of attempt creative solutions at this, the better off we'll, we'll all be.
1: Great, thank you for that. So in the last few minutes that we have together, I wanna bring us back to the original question of this panel, this webinar, who can speak on Palestine? So we've talked a lot about the constraining of debate and the constraining of Palestinian voices, narratives and experiences. And Dina and Noor, you've both talked about ways in which Palestinians have and continue to make new spaces that go beyond the binary of Palestinians, either just as passive victims of Israel or as villains when, because they engage in, in various forms of resistance. So moving forward, I'm curious to hear from you both a little bit more about how to encourage those new kinds of conversations that Noor was just talking about. How do we close the gap between the conversations about Palestinians, which in the West remain very constricted and the conversations by Palestinians that deepen people's understandings, whether it's in the general public whether it's in journalism schools, whether it's on college campuses, whether it's in media outlets. Please share with us your final thoughts on moving forward. How do we help enlarge the space for Palestinians to talk about Palestine? Uh, And maybe Dina, we can start with you.
2: Thank you so much. That's a very important question and huge. Um, And I think, you know, personally speaking, uh, I think Palestine is not only a Palestinian issue. It's a global issue. Um, it's an issue that speaks to uh it speaks to the needs and the concerns of many people. And by framing it as a global issue and by continuing to kind of frame it as an issue that must be and must inf- must be involved in and must inform debates around contemporary debates around climate change, around environment, around imagining the futures around uh, people living together around um, you know conflict around authoritarianism whatever Palestine is at the center of of these debates and there's someone involved um, kind of through the backside but kind of involved in this emerging field of Palestine studies which is such an important field because it's a field that can help different uh different fields interdisciplinary interdisciplinary field uh, in, in, you know engaged with um thinking about a better future for everyone so by framing palestine as a global concern um and it should be a global concern that that will somehow i think um Help us move forward i hope so i mean it might be it might be a utopian vision um but there are so many examples of palestinians engaged in it thinking about palestinian futures you know whether we are thinking through a feminist perspective whether we're thinking through a a, a queer perspective whether we're thinking through an economic perspective media perspective and so on Palestine is central to understanding inequalities in the world in different ways and it's central to understanding or helping people understand of how to cope with them And to go back to your original question which is who speaks to uh, speaks for the Palestinians, if we think about it as a global concern and we try and and, and kind of use that language and narrative, Everything that we say and do, then everyone um, should be speaking, should be able to speak for Palestine uh, and for the interest of the Palestinian humans um, as human beings. Thank you. That's all. Thank you, Dina. Nora, we'll end it with you. I
3: think there. Um, a couple of different avenues, right in 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 which we talk about this., um, what, you know, academically, for example, um, we can be more specific in our in our um, sort of d- desires and and prescriptions. Um, Palestine studies, as Dina points out, is a field um, has been around for five decades now and has produced incredible, um work um and literature and is often not cited enough. Um, but more than more than a question of citation okay. is also a question of how Palestine sort of operates within research fields. Um, sometimes that's academic, sometimes that's in, in matters of journalism, as Dino's talking about, the you know, parachute researchers and parachute journalists are it's still operating in sort of this under underlying problematic ethic. Um, and there for me, the question becomes, is Palestine another case study, right? Is Palestine just another place where we take theory and framework, I'm someone who works on settler colonialism, do we just take all these theories and frameworks and plop them on and see what sticks and, and try to give you another case study? Or do we think as and Saikini and many others have said, you think through the place, right? And you see what the place can give you. You see what you can learn from the place that also, enriches other conversations happening around the world and Palestine is incredibly ripe for that and has been for for, for decades um, and has produced some incredible um, insight um, globally and so I think you know part of it is going to the work that's already been created and continuing in that path and, and enriching that, that field of, of literature. Um, and making sure that that, as best as we can, is what's getting assigned, is the work that's what's getting highlighted in classrooms, you know, um, in a non-academic sort of sense. Um, part of this, I mean, it sounds, I, I I never usually do this and it sounds a bit cliche, but part of this is also about um, our interpersonal relations, which I think, and usually I don't bring it up because someone else does and, and, it, and it tends to get harped on too much, but I, I think that sometimes we we're so frustrated um, and we want big impact that we actually don't look to some of the smaller stuff. Um, and you know, I mentioned growing up in Tennessee earlier, and um, you know, some of the most conservative um, families uh, that I encountered are the first people to call me when something's going on in Palestine. Um, and that's not just sort of a question of, oh, this is interpersonal, but it doesn't get translated into policy. They're teaching classes at their churches on Palestine now. Um, they're doing PowerPoint presentations. Um, they're engaging in in um, pushing their communities to have very difficult conversations. Um, you know, I know uh, people in evangelical communities that are fighting sort of conversations on Zionism based largely um, not because I did a wonderful job, but because I started a level of curiosity in them that then led them down a path, a particular path of education, right? Um, so, you know, I, I think we, I think we can't um, devalue that um, work and uh, yeah, I'll stop there and we'll see where the, where the Q&A leads us.
2: I, I'm I'm just looking at a, at a comment in the Q and A which said that we shouldn't minimise what non-Palestinians are, are saying, and of course it's not it's not a competition, and uh, of course the more support we have, uh, and the more support by uh, non-Palestinian actors, that's really important uh, as well. Um, so, when we talk about Palestine as a global concern, then it means that global actors are part of it, you know, they, they understand uh, what, what we mean by that.
1: Thank you, Dina. And I think this is a great place to circle back to the, uh, the original document that I talked about at the top of the hour, uh, Palestine as Praxis, which you can find the link again in the chat, Which I think lays out very specifically the call for non-Palestinian allies and supporters of the Palestinian cause, very specific, concrete actions and things to keep in mind. Because you're absolutely right, both Dina and Noor, it isn't an either-or. It's a question of thinking about how do we not step over Palestinian voices and how we allow Palestinians to take the lead in all of our own. Um, contradictions and differences of opinions and so forth so it's not a matter of either speaking over Palestinians nor is it a matter of thinking of Palestinians as speaking in one voice but being in that conversation and having that curiosity about the Palestinian experience to continue to do more work.
3: And I do I mean I do think it is is obviously fair and, and important also to point out that like there's a difference between advocacy and speaking on behalf of someone in a prescriptive manner, right? As in, this is what you should do and what you shouldn't do. And that's obviously not what Dina and I are, are, are saying, right? There's a difference between you going out to an event and, and, and you know, engaging in public conversation and, and trying to encourage discourse about this issue in a manner that is opposite to sort of hegemonic views on mainstream media than you going out and saying, well, I think Palestinians should do this, this, and this. That is not what we say when we speak, when we say, speak for Palestine or on behalf of Palestine. We're talking about advocacy work here. And, you know, that has its own very sort of set of ethics that we didn't, I don't think got into today. Um, but certainly there are, you know, those conversations are ongoing and there are plenty of people doing really great work on that as well.
1: Excellent. Thank you for that. And thank you so much to Dina and Noor for today's conversation. And thank you to everyone who joined us or listened to this event. We are glad to share this conversation with you. I tried to weave in your questions and we'll share all of them with the panelists. Please join us for the next events in the shared Ashavaka and FMEP series. On February 8th, we'll have, and you can see the descriptions um, in the chat. Uh, on Wednesday, February 8th, we'll have an episode titled Limited Paradigms, talking about and examining the various limiting pal- uh, paradigms that, in spite of their liberal facade, have sought to contain the Palestinian experience and limit critique on the Israeli settler colonial project. This uh, webinar will feature professors Mark Mohammed Hayaj and Lana Tatour in conversation with Ashebeka senior analyst Yara Hawari. On Monday, February 27th, you can join me again. I'll be in conversation on a webinar titled Normalizing and Peacemaking as Discourses of Violence. This episode will explore how the dialogue discourse has been used to undermine the Palestinian liberation movement through its insistence on engagement with peace projects. I'll be in conversation with Inaz Abderraza from the Palestine Institute of Public Diplomacy, and Ashabaka Yara Hawari. And then on March 8th, there will be a webinar on allyship and the fight for Palestinian liberation. This episode will explore what allyship and solidarity has looked like, and what it can and should look like moving forward. It will feature Saleh Hijazi of the BDS movement, and Nadia Talnous of the Palestinian youth movement in conversation with Ashabaka's U.S. policy fellow, Tariq And that, again, is on March 8th. So please join us for all of these events, and please check back on the FMEP website, www.fmep.org, for a list of resources relating to this conversation. And please subscribe to Ash and FMEP's lists for resources and announcements of upcoming events, webinars, and podcasts. Once again, thank you all. Big thanks especially to Noor Jouda and Dina Matar. And until next time, thank you again.